Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the ID Podcast, where we discuss stories of medicine and the people behind them. My name is Garinder. And my name is Mike. On today's episode, we're going to be diving into mental health. Specifically, we're going to be learning all about schizophrenia. In today's society, we are breaking the silence around mental illness and starting more and more conversations about this important subject. However, a lot of the conversation centers around common conditions like anxiety and depression, which are important to talk about. But schizophrenia isn't one that is talked about as much. And when it does get talked about, well, unfortunately, it's really met with a lot of stigma and misinformation about what the disorder actually is. Today, we're going to clear that up and learn all about this very impactful topic. Our interviewers, Angelica and Priscilla, talk to Dr. Bruno Lozier, a neuropsychologist who works at McMaster University. They ask Dr. Lozier questions like, what is schizophrenia? And what are some misconceptions about the condition? What are some of the common symptoms you might see in someone with schizophrenia? What are some of the treatment options? And before we dive into it, a very quick disclaimer. Any information in this podcast is relevant to the point of publication, but our listeners should always review updated literature as things do change. Also, this podcast should not be viewed as a guide to treatment. Always consult with your family doctor about your specific circumstances and healthcare needs. Now, without further ado, here's Dr. Lozier. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this episode of the ID Podcast. We have a really interesting interview in store for you, so hope our listeners are looking forward to learning about this topic together with us. My name is Prasitha, and I will be one of your co-hosts for today. And my name is Angelica, and I will be the other co-host for today's episode. And today's special guest is none other than Dr. Bruno Lozier. Dr. Lozier works at the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Neurosciences at McMaster University as a neuropsychologist. And we also happen to know him well as our past tutor for the Brain and Behavior Unit at our medical school. Welcome, Bruno. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So as Priscilla mentioned, we're really looking forward to having you today. Um, and our topic is schizophrenia. And I know myself, I'm really looking forward to the, the discussions that we've had um, in the past regarding schizophrenia. So I'm looking forward to seeing what today's episode has in store. Before we dive into the topic of schizophrenia, perhaps you can tell us a bit about sort of your journey to becoming a neuropsychologist and what that entailed. Oh, thank you. Yes. So if, if I may, I, I thought I'd just talk a little bit about the question that's often asked and uh, maybe not within the medical field, but often patients will ask me, what's the difference between a psychologist and a psychiatrist. And I often tell them, well, a psychiatrist is a medicine specialty, it's a medical specialty. Um, psychology is a little different. Um, psychology really sort of started off as, and still is, a science, right? So if you think back to the 19th century with William James, um, psychology was pure science. But then because of the Second World War, there was a lot of need for mental health specialists. And that's when psychology was brought into the clinical realm to sort of help out because there weren't enough psychiatrists around to help people who would come back from war. So after that little detour, how does one become a neuropsychologist? Well, neuropsychology, much like oncology or pediatrics, psychiatry, it's a subspecialty of psychology. And a neuropsychologist is a psychologist who has a specific interest in brain behavior relationships. So the journey to become a neuropsychologist is one whereby one would do an undergraduate degree and then would go on to do a doctoral degree in psychology with a specialty in neuropsychology. 
So a lot of emphasis on learning things like neuroanatomy, neurophysiology, the things that would be important to sort of understand as one sort of investigates the intricacies of, of brain and brain behavior. Can you tell us a little bit maybe about some of the challenges associated with working in the field? Yeah, so like any other field, anytime you have any interactions with, with the patient, right? So it's to build rapport, it's to sort of like be clear and explain to your patients what the role and the purpose is. Uh, and as a neuropsychologist, one of the mainstay of my work is assessments and assessments can be long. So it's a real negotiation with patients to, to enlist them and engage them in a meaningful way. Not that it's impossible, it's not impossible at all. Say 90% of the time patients are very uh, open to the process and welcome it because it's an exploration in terms of understanding what may be ailing them at the time, whether it's memory issues secondary to a depressive illness or executive functions are affected in the context of someone who suffers from schizophrenia, for instance. Thank you for that. Very interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And thanks so much, Bruno, for going into the differentiation between a psychologist's work and a psychiatrist's work and some of the similarities as well. I think it's interesting to see the niches that they occupy, but also um, how they can complement each other in practice. Oh, yeah. No, and there's a real nice complement between psychiatry and psychology. But for the, from the patient perspective, sometimes it's confusing, right? Because there's the overlap in terms of sort of managing the psychiatric illness. Psychiatrists, from a medication point of view, psychologists, maybe more from intervention. And sometimes there's a blend of the two between the two disciplines. And that's a great segue, I think, to kind of set the stage for our conversation. Can you first give us a brief background on how mental illness has been treated or viewed in the past, like a history um, aspect to this? Right. So my first comment is that we certainly have come a long way in terms of helping individuals who suffer from mental illness. Um, I think if we go back to sort of like the uh, mid-19th century, a lot of the emphasis at that point was sort of containment. So people who suffered mental illness were sort of brought into you know, asylums essentially is what they were, where they were being cared for, nurtured for, and basically really approaching it from more of a symptom management perspective and making sure that they were safe and by the same token, so would the public be safe as well. Then sort of things progress as we gain more and more knowledge. You know, by the mid 20th century, a lot of the emphasis was on the treatment of symptoms using pharmacotherapeutics. So medication, right? So we saw the advent of antipsychotics and we saw the advent of antidepressives, some anxiolytics, medication that were very sort of like paramount and germane to the resolution of symptoms for folks who suffered, you know, some significant severe mental illnesses. Then things sort of continued to progress as we learned more and more. And then in addition to the pharmacotherapies, then we got into psychotherapy. So by that point on, moving forward, definitely, you know, there were a multi-pronged approach to the treatment of mental illness. So you would have medications, you would have psychotherapies like cognitive behavioral therapy, for instance, for psychosis in the context of schizophrenia. And then you had education and support for the people who were involved in the care of individuals who suffered from mental illness. And then, of course, functional supports like 
allied health, like occupational therapy, social work, vocational specialists, all with the aim of providing the patient a very sort of broad approach in terms of the management of their illness, but also of the impact of the illness on their lives, everyday living. That's really interesting. I think why I find the history so relevant, especially when it comes to how we treat mental illness to this day, is that we can see that the stigma kind of associated with the way that we treat people in the past is still very prevalent um, with how I think people perceive mental illness, mm. especially for the individual. You know, they might want to be afraid to get treatment or they might want to conceal it. And I think, I think that history is really important in understanding the stigma that still persists to this day um, regarding schizophrenia, which is why it's really important that we are aware of that before even talking about, I think, the condition itself. I agree with you, Angelica. It's, you know, the foundation of stigma, if I can use that kind of language, is, is lack of awareness, sort of using the language that you use, right? So as we become more and more aware of what the illnesses are, what the underpinnings or what the, the factors that come into play so that it reduces the unknown. And I think stigma often and other kinds of biases or prejudice is often founded in, in lack of knowledge, lack of knowing, right? It's that fear of the unknown that sometimes drives the, the opinions or the, the beliefs. Yeah, exactly. And so I think, you know, on that note, I think it's important to really talk about what is schizophrenia? What is, what is this condition? And before I ask you, I think what's interesting is that I was doing some research on my own and the word schizo is actually Greek for split. And I think a lot of that has caused confusion surrounding what the condition actually is because people think it's associated with split personality disorder. And so I think there's a lot of confusion surrounding what schizophrenia truly is. And I think that's why it's one of the most, you know, misunderstood and sort of feared conditions and when we talk about mental illness. So I'd be really interested to hear from you, you know, what, what is this condition? Right. No, I, I like the uh, sort of approach of understanding sort of the root of the label or the name, right? So, no, you're right. So schizophrenia is, is it's a complex illness. And I think one of the striking features and one of the things that possibly many people react to, it's that split, as you say, right, from the word schizo between sort of like reality and, and if I can use the word fiction, right? So the difficulty for someone who suffers from schizophrenia is to reconcile the, the dissonance between their belief system and, and the reality because often the symptoms that drive the behavior is a false assumption, a false belief, or a false perception of what's happening. And then of course, there's a response to that, right? So, and we'll probably get into that a little bit more in a minute, but things like hallucinations or delusions, right? So there's a dissonance or, or a misalignment between the reality that exists in their perception versus the reality that exists within their environment. And just before we continue, do we know if there's a particular cause of schizophrenia? Why does this happen to some people? So I, I think we've, we've definitely learned a lot about the illness itself. And I think there's not just one cause. I think it's a very complex interplay between genetics, environments, and brain sort of development, right? And maybe we'll talk a little bit more about it later. I don't know, but certainly there's, there's this sort of confluence and this interplay between those three factors. Yeah, I, I, we've certainly learned a lot about it, but I think there's a lot more to be learned for us to understand what the genesis of it is. Well, thanks so much, Bruno, for that definition. And now that we've set the stage for what schizophrenia is, can you tell us a little bit about 
maybe what it isn't. So what are some of the misconceptions that are associated with the condition or people who have schizophrenia that are false? Yeah, exactly. So yeah, there are, there are many, right? And, and what the inception of these misconceptions is, is a bit unknown, but I mean, it's people's sort of false assumptions, possibly for one, people think that people with schizophrenia are dangerous. That's not true. Um, you know, that schizophrenia may be caused by a bad upbringing, that's not true. Uh, that schizophrenia may be caused, and, and when I say not true, I mean that these are not the sole reasons for why one would develop an illness like schizophrenia, right? So, like I said, it's very complex. So things like uh, abuse during childhood, not true. The other side of this is that people feel that once someone has schizophrenia, they're incapacitated. They are to a point, but it's not true that they can't hold a job or be a productive member of society, right? So it all sort of relies on good support and their ability to, to maintain treatment protocols and then just sort of see exactly how far. The last misconception is that I am sort of aware of is that you know, people with schizophrenia require, and I guess it's all in the language, but that they require long-term hospitalization. That, that's not true. I think, you know, often people in a crisis or when symptoms flare up, they may need to be admitted to hospital for a period of time when we can stabilize symptoms um, just to bring things back to a level where they can return to the community and then you know, return to their pre-admission activities. But the need for long-term, no, that, that's, that's, a, that's a definite misconception. I think those are all really, you know, common misconceptions that I know that I've heard, particularly the violence one. When I think about sort of where that misconception sort of comes from, for me personally, I think about a lot of like the, the way the media and a lot of movies and televisions kind of portray this condition. Things like American Psycho, is that one of the movies? I'm just, I'm trying to think of the ones where they kind of perceive the serial killer as somebody who was schizophrenic. Right. And I guess I sort of wonder, like, how, how do you think the media and, and the portrayal of mental illness, especially schizophrenia, has affected, you know, our perception of the condition? Oh, it, it very likely has affected our, our perception, right? So Hollywood, not to pick on Hollywood, but the depiction of mental illness in those spheres is often uh, misrepresented, right? So... Yeah, so it, it will impact people's sort of perceptions, but, you know, hopefully people can take a step back and, and sort of like review exactly what, what this condition is and, and that it will sort of ebb and flow, right? So people should know that schizophrenia is not a static condition. It will ebb and flow, as I say, and there are people who feel that there's various types of schizophrenia, right? So kind of in the way that we will have learned in the uh, neurology section of MF4, uh, when we talked about multiple sclerosis, and you know you have the relapsing, remitting, and you have the progressive primary, secondary. Not exactly exactly parallel to that, but there are suggestions that there are different sort of presentations for schizophrenia. There are those for whom the symptoms stay pretty sort of equilibrium, stay the same, but there are those who will sort of have these phases where it will wax and wane. So. Again, we're, we're learning every day about this particular illness. Just for context for some of our listeners, Bruno mentioned MF4. Within our program here at McMaster, we have what are called medical foundations. And just as Bruno mentioned, the last one was focused on 
neurology and brain and behavior and that sort of thing, which is why, yeah, Bruno makes a great guest for our episode today. I appreciate all the compliments. <laughs> and so back to what you're talking about, some of the misconceptions, so things like people with schizophrenia are incapacitated or can't function as productive members of society, um, and some of the stigma that gets associated with these misconceptions, to what degree would you say the stigma gets worsened or compounded in people from marginalized groups? Yeah, that, that's a great question. It's very layered, if I can use that kind of language, right? So, I mean, I, I go back to the idea that, you know, stigma sort of stems from a place of not fully appreciating and not fully understanding. And I think that for marginalized groups, there's an added vulnerability that speaks to, you know, lack of access, lack of proper care, possibly, you know, things that could influence the presentation of an illness like schizophrenia. Schizophrenia, no, no different than any other medical condition like diabetes, right, requires a fairly regimented approach in terms of its management. So it needs medication, it needs all sorts of support. So if those are not in place, then the manifestation of the illness will be greater and then therefore may influence people in their perception of what schizophrenia may be. And then if you have somebody who is in an unfortunate situation where you know they may reside in, in an impoverished section of town or they may be a lower SCS or you know things that could impact their livelihood, then it may sort of feed into to some of the stigma, right? Because they may behave in a way that may say, oh see, there you go. This happened. I think you touched upon um, what Priscilla was getting at. A little bit more curious to know if there's any sort of populations at risk for developing schizophrenia. So by that I mean, is there a certain gender, a certain age range, socioeconomic status, sort of a, a living area, whether that's more rural or more city, things like that? Those are very good uh, points you've made, Angelica, and you're right. So in terms of vulnerabilities for uh, people who may present with schizophrenia, certainly younger age, male, right, tend to sort of be the sort of early representation Females also are represented in the population, but they tend to sort of manifest symptoms a little later. So sort of like the quintessential patient with schizophrenia tends to be the 19-year-old male who may have graduated from high school, has started maybe, you know, postgraduate studies. That's not necessarily, but it could be they started a job, there's a moment of stress, and then all of a sudden, some of the early signs of schizophrenia start to show, right? And we often think of schizophrenia as being individuals who, you know, have hallucinations and delusions, and they do. But the prodrome of schizophrenia sort of looks like somebody who starts to veer off, if I can use that language, their usual pattern. So, you know, prior to sort of the first symptoms kind of showing, the individual, if we're going to continue with the young male, they have been isolating themselves. They're not as social. They're behaving in ways that are uncharacteristic. So the parents will say, yeah, young little Joseph, you know, he was up all night. He was rummaging through his room. We weren't sure. He was sort of really kind of secretive. You know, he wasn't seeing his friends anymore. And there's an aspect of sort of like personal hygiene somehow that gets implicated. Often people will say, you know, he's not paying as much attention to, you know, how he looks, 
sort of he takes his food back to his room. He's not participating in family activities. And then it kind of like sort of comes to a head where, you know, parents say, okay, this is enough. We have to take little Joseph to the doctor. And then, you know, all these things become uncovered where the diagnosis of schizophrenia seems appropriate based on the clinical presentation. Uh, but certainly young male, there's a great debate where people go back and forth as to whether drugs may be sort of the catalyst to the evolution of schizophrenia, right? So it's a bit of a chicken and an egg kind of story because I certainly am not clear on that. Certainly there is a large component of individuals with schizophrenia who or present with symptoms that are, you know, labeled schizophrenia who will have either a history of consuming things like cannabis or harsher drugs or post the inception of symptoms then start to consume. So that's why it becomes very difficult, right? Because you can have under the banner of psychosis, you have schizophrenia, of course, but you can also have, you know, drug-induced psychosis. That was great. So I just want to clarify. So for what I'm understanding with schizophrenia, it's sort of like the symptoms are sort of gradual. So you might notice some um, changes in a person's behavior, but it kind of comes to a head all at once. And then there's a really big change. And that could be from like an emotional stressor of some sort or, but it, you can, it's not like it just happens overnight. You can definitely see that, that change in a person's behavior over time. Absolutely. Yeah. So it could be over the course of weeks, months, usually by the first year people will be, will be diagnosed. Uh, but, it, but it depends, right? It depends on people's access to resources. So in a more sort of metropolitan area like Hamilton, uh, where you have access to, you know, tertiary care very easily, or at least as easily as, as can be, the identification will be much sooner than for somebody who may be living more like up north, where, you know, services are, are sparse. Or... And... I was curious if, if patients with schizophrenia often have other sort of comorbid psychiatric conditions. Yeah, so the emphasis certainly is on the core symptoms of schizophrenia, right? Because those are pretty prevalent. So when people are talking about auditory hallucinations, commanding hallucinations, especially where, you know, they're being told to do things and they're really struggling. That's the emphasis on trying to manage those or the delusions. But comorbid conditions, frequent ones, substance use, for sure. Um, and anxiety. People experience a lot of anxiety um, when spending any time with someone who suffers from schizophrenia. You build rapport. What they will say is that it's very distressing to them because you know the voices tell them things either that are self-derogatory, meaning you know saying things bad about the person. You know you're you're ugly. You dress funny. They're making fun of you. To things like commanding. Uh, auditory hallucinations where, you know, go do this, you know, kill your neighbor's cat or, you know, puncture the tires or, you know, put the Javix in this person's food because they're trying to kill you. So it becomes distressing because even though the person, you know, we talked earlier about how that the, the sort of the core sort of definition of schizophrenia, it's that dissonance between sort of reality and non-reality, if we want to use that language. But the person may still have some sort of insight into the idea that some of these things may not always be accurate, right? But they can't sort of like fight it. It's, it's that the voices take over. So yeah, so certainly substance abuse, anxiety, depression is, is common. 
right? Because you get a lot of changes in their livelihood. So if we go back to the example of, of the young man who sort of like, you know, starts his life after graduating from high school, whether he goes for post-secondary education or starts a job, and then all of a sudden these symptoms start to interfere with their ability to achieve their goals, right? After a while, it will sort of like leave them in a situation where they will experience symptoms of, of depression because they will experience loss. And if we can take like a quick detour, because you talked about hallucinations as being kind of one of the central things that you would see in patients with schizophrenia, I'm curious to know, we also hear of the term delusions, and how would you kind of compare and contrast between delusions and hallucinations, and maybe what their roles might or might not be in schizophrenia? Yeah, so certainly if, if we take a look at something like the DSM, right, or the DSM-5, certainly both sets of symptoms are predominant in the presentation. But just briefly, hallucinations, we tend to think of auditory hallucinations, so voices, right? So the person will be hearing a voice, which they tend to externalize as in like, it's, it's either a stranger, typically a stranger, they can characterize it as being male or female. At times, maybe they, they recognize it as being somebody they may know, or they may attribute it to a known entity. So often they'll say it's Satan who's talking, right? So they'll sort of cast it in that context. So hallucinations, typically auditory hallucinations, you don't get as much perceptual or visual hallucinations in schizophrenia sometimes, but not as much. So the, the, the bulk of hallucinations tend to be auditory. A delusion is more of a fixed belief. The idea in a delusion for somebody who suffers from schizophrenia is they're sort of gathering all sorts of different pieces of information that to the outsider may not have any connection, but somehow for them, there is a connection and there is salience. So a paranoid delusion, you know, the idea that there's a black car parked in the corner, there are people in there, they're investigating me, they're paying, you know, undue attention to me, you know, it's probably the government, more of a delusion, sort of like the idea that disbelief without any proof, right, of somebody sort of like having a special interest in the person. Um, there can be delusions of grandeur, you know, I just won, I'm, I'm the CEO of a very important company in the U.S., I have millions, you're, you're, you're holding me against my wishes, I can't take care of my business, or erotomania, right? So I'm, I'm someone famous, uh, I'm in love, or, or Britney Spears is in love with me, and you know all of these things that are fixed beliefs that have no foundation. So that's why it's important to sort of like do a very thorough history. Um, there is somebody out there with whom or for whom Britney Spears is in love with, so maybe it is that person that you're seeing. I don't know, but we should make sure that it isn't. But then, you know, sort of like through your assessment and, and your history, you'll, you'll come to realize that some of the assertions that they're making don't have any foundation in, in reality. So hallucination tends to be more internal voices that are not egocentric, whereas delusions tend to be sort of fixed beliefs that sort of speaks to the core and is based on information that is not validated. That was really great. I think it's important to really distinguish the two because there's a lot of misconceptions surrounding, you know, what a delusion is and what a hallucination is. And I think more important to give that kind of 
clarity and context surrounding what a command installation is, is important because I think it really puts into perspective the kind of sort of challenges that a person with schizophrenia faces on a, a daily basis. And I couldn't imagine having these voices in my head or having these sensations happening to me all the time in the day and not knowing how to control them. So I think it's really important that people are aware and they understand and can try to, I want to say almost put themselves in the shoes of somebody who would be experiencing these types of symptoms. Can you talk a little bit more about how these individuals with schizophrenia, their, their thought patterns, as well as maybe other sort of those negative symptoms? So, you know, how does their mood look? Are they interested in things? Like what is what are some other symptoms that we can see in people besides just the delusions and the hallucinations? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So often people talk about uh, schizophrenia as being comprised, as you say, of positive symptoms, which we just described, like hallucinations, delusions, and negative symptoms. So the negative symptoms tend to be more passive types of behaviors and observations that we make of the patient's presentation. So examples of negative symptoms, you can divide them actually into cognitive and behavioral. So if you look at a negative behavioral symptom, they tend to be a bit more apathetic, right? So um, there's a poverty of speech. They may be lacking in motivation and drive, right? So it's they understand that they need to do something, but they're not taking the steps to do it, right? So I'll give you a concrete example. So I saw a patient the other day who has schizophrenia and talked about the idea that they would like to exercise more. They understand that exercising is important, but you can talk about it, but if you let them be, they won't show and drive, they won't sort of put into place the steps that are required to achieve the goal that they're thinking of, right? So I will get up early tomorrow, I will go to the gym, I will, you know, do a warm up. Like they're lacking that ability to sequence those sort of like complex activities and it looks like they're lacking in drive. Elogia, which is just a complicated term for like what I said earlier, poverty of speech. So sometimes people will think that, you know, somebody with schizophrenia is like thought blocking or is that they're not saying much, right? So you'll, you'll ask them a question and then there's silence, right? For extended period. And then the responses will be brief, maybe one word, two words. So that's the behavioral side. On the cognitive side, so negative symptoms, it's, it's actually quite, this is where I think for somebody who suffers from schizophrenia, the cognitive side can be sort of the biggest impediment we can deal with the positive symptoms, hallucinations, delusions, medication therapy, but with the negative symptoms, and especially with the cognitive subcomponent, it's harder because then you're talking about memory deficits. You're talking about problems with working memory, with executive functions, right? So the ability to plan, to strategize, they, they lack in the ability uh, to sort of formulate plans, just like I described with the individual who may have wanted to exercise more, right? So that's where I think in the context of schizophrenia, that's the, the biggest challenge in terms of management, because at this point in time, we have ways in which we can sort of try to bolster these cognitive abilities, but not to the point where we can sort of make it back to where it should be. So that's that's a big challenge. So when whenever we see individuals who suffer from schizophrenia, and they always have sort of a, a mixed sort of presentation in terms of negative and positive symptoms. So the ones who tend to tip the balance towards the positive symptoms do better than the ones who tip the balance with the negative symptoms. They're the, they're the patients 
for whom it's going to be a lot more challenging to try to help them remediate and rehabilitate themselves. And speaking more on the idea of presentation, Bruno, I think Angelica alluded to this earlier, the idea of violence and aggression um, mm -hmm. associated with schizophrenia and people with schizophrenia, to what degree is this a part of the matrix of presentation and to what degree is this a misconception? I would say it's a misconception. There's a number of factors involved. If we look at, at schizophrenia just as is, I don't think there's any evidence to suggest that schizophrenia or an individual with schizophrenia is more violent than another individual. But there are mediating factors that will come into play, right? And we've mentioned a few already. So people who are male, who are younger, often if they're single, right? And if they're engaged in substance abuse, um, they come from an impoverished environment, so poverty, and they're treatment non-compliant. Those together will conspire to sort of maybe elevate the risk. I work in forensic psychiatry. You mentioned that I was part of the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Neurosciences in your intro, which is true. But my clinical work occurs at St. Joe's, and I'm part of the forensic psychiatry program. And in our program, the number one uh, mental health diagnosis is schizophrenia. And these are individuals who will have found themselves at the threshold of the courts and the law, right? So somehow something happened and brought them to, to the courts. So it could be that they stole the candy bar or they committed a more egregious act, a violent act. They could have assaulted someone. And in some cases, sometimes, sadly, they, they may have murdered someone. So when we look at you know, all of the factors that are involved, it involves the things that I just described to you, right? So substances, uh, impoverishment, um, these things. So it's, it's not directly schizophrenia per se, but it's all the other factors that come in combination with schizophrenia that would have conspired to possibly the violent act to transpire. Having said that, we know that not every patient with schizophrenia commits violent acts. We know that not every patient with schizophrenia who uses substances and you know is male or young commits violent acts. So it's not that simple, but often when we see someone, especially in the context that I work in, if they've committed a violent act, the target is of course stabilizing the mental health but also addressing some of the other issues that may increase the risk, right? So it's all about sort of like gauging risk, trying to mitigate risk by addressing substance, you know, anger, tendencies possibly, and go from there. I don't believe that being schizophrenic makes you more prevalent for violence. But yeah, we do see violence, but there are a host of other factors that come into play that is part of that equation. I think that's the key point, right? Like if someone has schizophrenia, it doesn't mean that they're going to become violent and aggressive. There are a lot of other factors at play, you know, increase their chances. But I think a lot of people assume that if you have schizophrenia, you're going to be violent. You're going to commit these types of acts. That's what's important about your answer. So I think something that I'd come across when we were reading about schizophrenia for our tutorial was this risk of suicide in a lot of patients who do have schizophrenia. And I remember I actually was reading a study uh, from, I think it's the CAMH, uh, in Toronto, and 
they had found that individuals with schizophrenia and spectrum disorder account for over one in 10 suicide deaths. Another statistic from Stats Canada found that 40% will attempt suicide over the course of the disease and uh, 10 people will actually follow through on it and complete it. Based on this, this evidence that we see with these statistics, why do we think people with schizophrenia are at a higher risk of, of suicide? So I think, you know, if we just look at suicide in and of itself, uh, that, that's the $64,000 question, as they would say, it would be important. It's, it's very hard. But what we do know is that people come to a point where options seem to have disappeared. So they may have been dealing with an unrelenting stressor. You know, things may have changed dramatically. So there's a catastrophic event. There, there's more as many reasons for people who go and, and complete suicide as there are stars in the sky. But if we're talking about specifically about schizophrenia or people who suffer from schizophrenia, you can see where someone who suffers from a chronic illness, which schizophrenia is, an illness where often people may not feel that they have a lot of control over the manifestation of the symptoms, right? Because um, the voices are present and the idea of the black car in the corner, it's, it's, it's always there, right? So you can see how when we talked about, right, our stress diathesis model, right? So sort of like how stressful that would be, again, making a MF4 reference, brain and behavior. So you can see how over time, the cumulative sort of stress would get. So what happens, I think, for somebody who suffers from schizophrenia, and here, I'm not speaking from evidence-based literature, but more from my clinical experience, those who have attempted, and in the cases where they have completed, it's just what I was talking about, right? It's the idea of the unbearableness of what the illness brings to bear, the changes in their livelihood, the fact that it feels like it's not controllable, the fact that, you know, sometimes support is not available. So there can be many factors, as you can see, that would sort of come together to culminate in the idea. The one key factor, I think, for suicide and in many suicide when it comes to mental illness is substance use. Substance use often results in disinhibition, poor judgment, impulsive acts, and then sometimes people don't intend to complete suicide, but the means or the methods by which they chose to approach it sometimes is irreversible or hard to stop. So in schizophrenia or people who have schizophrenia, yeah, I can see how there may, there will be many different factors that will come into play. Um, and it's, yeah, it's a devastating uh, illness. Yeah, because I, I think, you know, if we're talking about people who are between the ages of, I think you mentioned like onset between adolescence to 30s, and yeah. I imagine them taking their lives, like that's a very premature cause of death. So it's, it's mm -hmm. I thought that was pretty, pretty disheartening to read that statistic. And so, um, yeah. yeah, it's really important that these individuals do seek this treatment. Seek treatment. And um, I think what's key to the treatment, obviously the medication, psychotherapeutic support, but also education, right? So it's educating the patient, educating the loved ones, providing, making sure that they have a support, uh, a good support system in place, early identification for sure, um, to, to give them hope and, and venues by which they can have access to treatment or interventions at least that will alleviate some of these you know, dark periods that one can 
easily understand they would go through. On that note, you sort of mentioned the medication side of things, but also the other supports and other components to management. How would you explain kind of the dichotomy between the two and how they interplay with each other? Mm -hmm. No, that's a great question. Um, so maybe what I'll do is I'll just preface by saying, right, so schizophrenia is a clinical diagnosis. We don't have a blood test for it. We can do neuroimaging and neuroimaging will be informative, but it doesn't sort of like on its own give us the diagnosis, right? So because it's a clinical diagnosis based on symptoms and observations, then what we do is we have to have a, a comprehensive and a coordinated effort in terms of the management of the of the illness. So it includes both the medications, so the antipsychotics typically, right? So we have first and second generation antipsychotics that are available. And then we can, as an adjunct, we can add psychotherapy. So one of the more common psychotherapy in the context of the management of schizophrenia is cognitive behavioral therapy for psychosis. So addressing those positive symptoms that we were talking about earlier, the hallucinations and the delusions. And then combined with those two approaches, then you can add on more support from allied health, so occupational therapy, so for more adaptive leisure and lifestyle issues, right? Because you want to look at the whole person, just don't want to treat the symptoms, just don't want to treat the impact of the symptoms, but you also want to equip them with strategies and skills to sort of be able to become more autonomous and independent or as much as possible, right? So it's all about providing the individual with purpose and meaning. And then of course, uh, a vocational, often a vocational specialist is involved for helping them find volunteering activities or even part-time work, social work, which will help with financial stuff, appointments, sort of all of the government kind of stuff that they need to renew their cards and so on and so forth. So it's, it's medication, therapy, and all sorts of interventions to sort of be very comprehensive and, and whole person approach. I think the way you explained it, Bruno, really hit home that not only is schizophrenia as a disease process, you know, so multifaceted, but also correspondingly, so should its management approach be. I think it speaks to the natural history of how we've treated mental illness over time, right? So at the very beginning of our podcast, we talked about how has our approach to mental illness changed. In the early days, we were just sort of containing but over time, we recognize that there's more to it than that. So we address the symptoms, and then we try to address the functionality, meaning the abilities that the person has. So it's not just all or nothing. It's trying to find out where their strengths are, where their weaknesses may be, supporting the weaknesses, strengthening their strength, and then sort of giving them meaningful lives, right, as much as possible. Still on the topic of treatment, I'm so curious. So we talked about how you know, a lot of patients might not adhere to their medication and there might be a chance of relapse earlier. So why, why does treatment sometimes not work or why are some people having trouble accessing treatment? So, so there's two sides to the, the treatment issue, right? And, and sort of at the middle is compliance. So their ability to stay compliant. So a lot of the, there's different types of approaches. I mean, I'm not a physician, as you know, my sort of understanding with discussion with my colleagues and being part of teams that do treat schizophrenia. So one of the uh, approaches for medication is just oral medication on a daily basis. So the patient takes the medication in the morning or in the evening, right? Medications are very helpful, but medications also have side effects. 
So one of the barriers and the challenges is the sometimes the side effect of the medication. So often the compliance issue for somebody who suffers from schizophrenia when they don't stay on their medication has to do with side effects. One of the other aspects to that, which is the challenge that we sort of alluded to earlier is the fact that it hits people at the prime of their young adulthood, right? So people want to maintain a fairly quote unquote, if I can use the language, normal lifestyle. So you can imagine, you know, the 20 year old individual male will say, who has schizophrenia, who wants to go out to visit his friends on the weekend, he goes to their apartment, doesn't want to take the medication with them because they're going to say, what are you doing? What are you taking, right? So there's a, I wouldn't say it's an embarrassment, but it's the idea of sort of like maintaining privacy. So people don't like to carry their medications with them. These are the common sort of like issues that come with compliance. The other issues is that some of the medications have some metabolic side effects. So weight gain is a big one, right? So sometimes, you know, the, the metabolic effects can go pretty far and sort of cause uh, issues that are akin to things like diabetes, right? So you have to manage the medication. And, and I would leave that to my physician colleagues who can speak to medication better than I can. But if we talk about what are some of the challenges to compliance, these are some of the challenges, right? Sort of the idea of taking it, the side effects, which can be metabolic, or sometimes it's just not a pleasant feeling that they experience, right? Or they don't want others to know. So the other approach to medication in terms of treating to try to circumvent these is long, what they call long-acting injectables. So injectables, so you don't have to have it as often. So a long-acting injectable medication can be delivered every other week, every month, and now you can get them that will last three months. So there are pros and cons to the two, right? So on the medication side, the oral medication, you have to take it every day, so you have to remember to take it. So we talked about some of the negative symptoms earlier, right? So another challenge is remembering to take the medication. So, so from the oral side of things, that's what they're dealing with. The long-acting injectables, they work well, but you can imagine, you know, it's not like on day 30, they stop working. Very likely prior to the end of the cycle, their effects are, you know, not as great, so they become less and less. So you try to gap those periods between injections so that they don't sort of have a resurgence of their symptoms. But that's, that's the medication side of things, that, as I understand it as a non-physician. Just a question about sort of the psychotherapy options. Do you find that there are any, that there are any barriers uh, associated with people accessing those treatment options? Yep. So, so certainly a combination of medication and psychotherapy, right, is, is the ideal combination. One of the things that we didn't talk about yet, but I can mention now, is that sometimes with people who suffer from schizophrenia, their insight into their illness may also suffer, right? So it's very common to have somebody in the office and you're trying to sort of talk to them about what's happening and they will respond in a way to suggest that there's nothing wrong with me, right? So if someone feels that there's nothing wrong with them, then it's very hard to implement treatment because why would you give me treatment? There's nothing wrong with me. So on the psychotherapeutic side of things, insight is very important because in order for them to adopt and endorse some of the psychotherapeutic directives, right? So to challenge the voice. So that's one of the ways one could do. So 
you know, to reduce the anxiety that comes from the voices, you can challenge the voices, right? So if the voice is telling me that I'm going to do this, well, how often have you listened to the voice? How often have you actually given in to the voice, right? To sort of reassure them that it's just the voice, it's not controlling you. You can control the voice and then sort of building their skill set so that they have more a sense of mastery and control over the voice. But it's the insight, that's the challenge. They have to sort of believe in the idea that A, there's something going on, and B, that they can actually affect change. Usually you start off with medication, then they stabilize, and then you can introduce psychotherapy, and then you introduce all the other elements that we talked about earlier, try to promote greater functionality. Speaking of some of the other elements as well, we're curious to maybe touch a little bit on how family plays into all of this. So um, we can imagine that the families of patients with schizophrenia, they probably have their own experiences with having someone close to them who has this uh, condition. And so if we were to briefly touch on that, how can family members support and how do they sort of travel the journey with the patient as well and how can they support? No, absolutely. That, that's, that's a great question again. Um, so the idea of family involvement, right, is key. Um, support from the beginning. And I think the way we can support families and supporting their loved ones who suffer from schizophrenia is through education, is to help them understand what's happening, right? Because we talked about stigma and how stigma is lack of knowledge and a bit of fear of the unknown. The more we can break down those barriers, that is knowledge and fear, then we can enlist their engagement in being, you know, agents of support in terms of their loved one's care. So having them part of the process right from the start, engaging them, listening to them, seeing their point of view, they live with the individuals, we don't, right? So having a balanced perspective and making sure that all voices at the table are, are being heard. And I think it's great, Bruno, that you mentioned, again, the education piece and helping with that awareness and information piece for the family, too, because I think once you enable the family with that knowledge and equip them as well, they can also be part of that process of breaking down the stigma that the patient faces. So um, definitely a great point brought up by you there. My pleasure. And so we've talked a lot about schizophrenia and sort of the symptoms of the condition, sort of how you can diagnose and treat it. But what does the outlook look like for somebody who is diagnosed with schizophrenia? I think going back to one of the misconceptions that you touched on earlier, there's this idea that once you have schizophrenia, you know, there's no kind of light at the end of the tunnel. It's a debilitating condition that there's no fixes and and a patient will never be able to live a relatively normal life. So I'm just curious, sort of, what does the outlook look like for these types of patients? So... Yeah, I think that the approach and the outlook should be an individualistic one. So it's about the person who is before you. Although people suffer from schizophrenia and there are common patterns in schizophrenia, the experience of schizophrenia for the patient will be an individual one. So I'm going back to the idea of sort of building on the strengths that they have and trying to sort of minimize the impact of their weaknesses within the clinical context you know, to to support individuals in achieving, you know, as normal a life as possible should always be the goal. And I'm often reminded when I think about these things, and I may have mentioned it, and again, I'm going to make a reference to MF4. Um, There's a great TED Talk, and it's this woman, she's an attorney, and she gave a TED Talk back in like 2012. Her name is uh, Ellen Sabs. 
B-L-Y-N-S-A-B-S. And she was diagnosed with schizophrenia, but she, she through perseverance and, and, and time, she, she was able to achieve great things. And she speaks quite candidly about her experience with schizophrenia. So I think, you know, the, the outlook can be very positive, but I think the outlook should be a realistic one. I think that's a wonderful note for our listeners as well to maybe check out that TED Talk. We'll link it as well in the description. Thanks. Mm-hmm. So I think we had a great discussion today about schizophrenia, about various components to it, and then also clinically, you know, how is it diagnosed and how is it treated as well. Um, so this is a bit of a hard task, Bruno, but I'm sure you can do it best. If we were to pick out main pearls or takeaways from this conversation um, for our listeners to know about schizophrenia, what would you kind of distill that down to? Yeah, so, you know, I mean, people who suffer from schizophrenia certainly you know, the first sort of layer is is the illness, the disease, but there's more to it beyond that. And I think for us as clinicians, for us as treatment providers, I mean, our first focus is always, you know, to to try to minimize suffering. And, and that should be the, the thing that we do. But we should also try to understand who is behind, right, that sort of like first layer. Who is that person what were they hoping to do? What were they hoping to be? And see how we can work together in terms of achieving some of that. I don't know that we can always achieve all of it, but we can always try to achieve most of it. Yeah, so I think that we need to just make sure that we treat the illness properly, but also see who's behind that illness and, and you know, give that the person, the individual. For sure. Yeah, I I think that's a really great takeaway. So before we conclude, uh, we just wanted to ask you, what is the best one-liner advice you've given and the best one that you've received? (laughs) Exactly. So uh, yes, uh, I've given that some thought. I'm not sure I've given it enough thought, but I certainly have given it thought. So for me, I think, you know, at the end of the day, the one-liner that I'd like to share is, you know, don't sweat the small stuff. Uh, we sometimes sort of get lost in the trees, right, and not see the forest. I would say don't don't sweat the small stuff. And and that's a mantra that I even uh, give myself in the morning when I first wake up. But the one that I like a lot and lately I've, I've heard, it's an African proverb, and it sort of speaks to this notion that we've been talking about, you know, in the context of what's the best approach in terms of helping and supporting people who suffer from schizophrenia. And the proverb goes something like this. You may have heard it before. It says, if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. And I think the idea of going together is that teamwork, right? And it's like that idea of engaging the patient, not just seeing the symptoms, but engaging that person, bringing the team together, working collaboratively, and then we can help them achieve greater things than if they were not supported with all of the bright minds in medicine, such as yourselves and your colleagues and, and everybody who will work you know, together to assist someone who suffers from, from schizophrenia. Well, that's a really great proverb and thank you for sharing that with us. I love that message. So I think that kind of concludes our discussion for today. On behalf of the ID podcast, we want to thank you for taking time today to speak with us about this topic. Um, I think we had a really thoughtful discussion and I know that I personally have gained a lot of knowledge and a lot of reflection to do, I think. So I really appreciate uh, you taking the time today to be with us. 
Oh, it's it's my pleasure. It was it was a great experience. I really enjoyed it, and and I hope that your listeners enjoy it as well. And and just as a matter of of public health service, just remember, wash your hands, don't touch your face, wear a mask. Yes, wear a mask for sure. Yeah, just to echo what Angelica said, um, a great conversation today, and definitely something I'll be referring back to. I think in future years. Wow, that was a really interesting discussion, and I definitely learned a lot about schizophrenia. I agree. I found it really interesting to hear about what schizophrenia is and also what it isn't. There are many misconceptions out there about the condition, and I appreciated learning more about what's fact and fiction regarding the condition. One thing that really jumped out at me was clearing up a misconception about people with schizophrenia being violent or dangerous. Uh, like Dr. Losey was saying, these acts are more likely due to a combination of mediating factors like substance abuse, poverty, treatment, non-compliance, and so on, rather than an inherent symptom of schizophrenia itself. Exactly. And it's so important for us to educate ourselves and others about these things. As Dr. Losey explained, education really is key in supporting individuals with schizophrenia. And in keeping with our mission to make sure we get all of the information correct, we want to explain some of the terms that we mentioned in the interview today to make sure that all of our listeners are on the same page. At one point in the interview, Dr. Lozier mentioned something called a prodrome. For our listeners who don't know, a prodrome refers to the early signs and symptoms of a disease that appear before the major signs and symptoms start. These early symptoms signal the impending onset of a condition. And tied to the idea of symptoms, another idea that was brought up was that of positive and negative symptoms. These terms can be a little bit confusing, so let's do a quick overview. Positive symptoms are symptoms that aren't there normally, but get added on in people with the disorder. So these are things like delusions and hallucinations that Dr. Lossier was talking about. Negative symptoms, on the other hand, are things that get taken away. These are things like withdrawal from social situations, decreased motivation, inability to show emotions, and so on. Now, this is a very basic understanding of what positive and negative symptoms are, and I encourage our listeners to read more, but that is about the gist. Dr. Lozier also mentions the DSM-5 during the interview. DSM-5 stands for the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, with the 5 indicating the 5th edition. This is an official archive of all conditions that are formally defined as mental disorders, published by the American Psychiatric Society. It's used by healthcare professionals all over the world to diagnose mental disorders. The stress diathesis model is another concept that is brought up during the episode. This is the theory that a genetic predisposition for an illness, known as the diathesis, combined with environmental triggers like stress, work together to lead to the development of a particular condition. As Dr. Losey was explaining, both the genetic predisposition combined with environmental stresses are thought to play a role in the development of schizophrenia. Dr. Losey also mentions a great TED Talk about a patient's experience with schizophrenia. We've linked this in the show notes for our listeners to check out. Finally, we've linked the CAMH and Stats Canada articles that Angelica references in the interview, which talk about the risk of suicide in individuals with schizophrenia. One quick clarification to make is that one out of 10 suicide deaths are in people with schizophrenia spectrum disorder, including other diagnoses such as schizoaffective as well, but not just schizophrenia itself. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast and learned something about schizophrenia. If you're interested in learning more, we've linked some great resources in the show notes below. Thank you so much to Dr. Bruno Lozier for joining us and educating us about such an important topic. If there's another topic you would like for us to cover next, send us a message or tweet at us. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at The ID Podcast. 
We would also like to thank Angelica Rivas and Prasida Parthasarathi for interviewing Bruno, as well as Daniel, Monica, and Francine for helping them create the episode. Finally, as always, we'd like to thank the rest of the team, Omri, Lucy, and Naman, as well as Isabella for making the music. Thank you for tuning into another episode of the ID Podcast, where we explore the stories of medicine and the people behind them.